Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. It's my pleasure to welcome, for the first time, onto EM Case's Best Case Ever series, Dr. Shira Brown, Chief of Emergency Medicine at South Niagara uh, Emergency Systems, Assistant Clinical Professor, Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University. Dr. Brown has been practicing emergency medicine full-time for about 10 years and has a particular interest in airway management, cricothyrotomy, and simulation. Dr. Brown, welcome to EM Cases. Thank you, Anton. Let's hear your best case ever. I understand this happened at Janus General a few years back. Yeah, so a few years back, I was working in Janus General, which is a mid-sized hospital. And uh, it was just near the end of my shift when I heard a patch that we were receiving a periadolescent girl who had jumped five stories, and she would be arriving in about two to three minutes. Our organization had worked a lot on airway management, and uh, we pulled our difficult airway card out immediately, knowing that this may uh, represent uh, a case of uh, difficult airway management. When uh, the patient rolled in, uh, we saw you know, a pretty dramatic sight. It was a uh, a fairly crumpled adolescent child who had obvious extremity fractures and uh, massive facial injuries. So my colleague went to make a brief attempt at uh, direct laryngoscopy after giving her some ketamine. Um, she actually arrived quite awake and, and breathing spontaneously. And, uh, you know, the, the entire facial architecture was uh, mobile and, you know, all we could really see was blood. And so my other colleague and I looked at each other and, and we we're just like, wow, this is it. This is what we've been preparing for. And uh, we'd just been in the sim lab, you know, a month prior practicing together. So we didn't really need to talk. Um, I just opened up the, the fourth drawer in our uh, difficult airway cart and uh, grabbed what we call our, our stab bag, ripped it open, and my friend and colleague looked at me and said, it's right there, it's right there, you know, the, at the cricothyroid membrane. So um, at that point, the patient stopped breathing, and she obviously couldn't be bagged, and her, her sat started to drop. So um, I uh, inserted the scalpel, didn't need to actually do a longitudinal incision because it was a fairly small neck. Um, so I did a horizontal incision and twisted the blade. We attempted just to put a bougie directly in because that is uh, the technique that we advocate in our organization, but we weren't quite successful. So at that point, I put the scalpel in further and twisted again and used my finger to dilate. And unfortunately, I did make the error of, uh, of not fully re- retracting the scalpel before putting my finger in. But we did uh, access the airway. We put in a bougie immediately after. And in less than a minute, we had a patient airway. You know, we saw the sats going up. There was a lot of relief in the room. It was pretty uh, exciting. And then after about three or four minutes, another interesting thing happened. We found that the sats kind of started to drop again. So our ENT at that point had arrived because we had called for help. And she bronked the patient and found that we had uh, gone down the left main stem which actually I don't know that we were there initially, but probably the anxiety and excitement of the situation caused uh, the RT to sort of push the tube further down. So that was um, just sort of interesting as well. And then, you know, uh, uh, we airlifted the patient out to our, our referral center. And, you know, we weren't feeling particularly optimistic about the case because, it, you know, we thought, oh, you know, she may have had a significant neurological injury, an intracranial hemorrhage. But uh, we found out later that she had actually done really well. And, you know, we were obviously very excited about that. 
Wow, congratulations. That is an amazing save. I know that there's probably a lot of people out there who wouldn't be as well prepared as you were to do a crike. You had mentioned simulation. Could you talk a little bit about how the simulation prepared you? Because I know that there's a lot of simulation done uh, in residency programs. So residents are getting quite a lot of exposure to this incredible learning tool, uh, but staff physicians aren't getting quite as much exposure and maybe they should be. Just could you explain to us your simulation program and how that helped you in this case? Yeah, so we um, created a cohesive program based on the Difficult Airways Society guidelines adapted to our organization. And we uh, crafted a standardized cart for all of our sites and our ICUs. And then we have the algorithm to use the carts uh, post on our wall. And for the knowledge translation piece, we felt it was important not only to uh, to have a standardized cart and to have a standardized algorithm, but to also practice that algorithm in a simulation environment so people would be familiar with equipment and how to work through the algorithm. So we do that once or twice a month. We have sessions where any of our 70 to 100 eMERGE docs and our ICU physicians go and uh, can work through difficult airway scenarios with their team, including nurses and RTs. Fantastic. You know, we talk about being prepared for an airway and in the upcoming episode live from EMU 2018 with Scott Weingart, we're going to be talking about airway and airway preparation. And in, in that live podcast, we talk about preparation just when the patient arrives or when they're patched in. But really, the preparation starts way in advance uh, with everyone being familiar with the difficult airway kit uh, and having even better a great simulation program in place so that everyone can not only be familiar with the difficult airway kit, but when you're in the heat of the moment, can just smoothly go through all those steps. Yeah, I agree. And in this particular case, we really saw that because, you know, I, when we opened the bag, my colleague grabbed the bougie, my RT grabbed the tube. None of us even really had to speak. We all knew everyone's roles and we were able to quickly facilitate a crike without the doc really needing to say much. And to be perfectly honest, in that moment, you don't really want to have to say much. So it's really great um, if you can have that opportunity. And of course, you know, if you if you have to walk people through it, you will. But uh, it takes a lot of pressure off your team leader if everyone knows where everyone's going. Let's talk a little bit about the crike itself. Mm-hmm. So first, is a crike hard to do? No, it's a very easy procedure. Very easy, eh? Okay, so yeah, we always talk about how it's not the crike itself that is the problem. It's more that huge mental leap you need to take to actually do it. Yes, that's usually the conversation people have. And of course, if you practiced it, it becomes much easier as well, right? Absolutely. I just want to clarify the actual technique that you used. So in the upcoming podcast, um, Scott Weingart and I, we talk about doing the scalpel finger, scalpel finger technique, and that's where... You do your vertical incision, then you palpate the cricothyroid membrane, then you put in your horizontal incision, twist, take the knife out, put your finger in, followed by the bougie, and then your tube. In this case, I understand that you tried doing it without the second finger step, i.e. you made your horizontal incision and then put the bougie straight in but you had problems with that. Could you just talk a little bit about how your organization came to using that technique and what you think the options are? And just to tell the audience that we're in an evidence-free zone here, you know, there's no good RCTs with uh, bougie crikes. 
Yeah, so our organization decided to advocate for a simple scalpel bougie technique, which is what I attempted first. And I think my natural instincts fell to go back to the the finger technique once I had uh, been unsuccessful. You do have a smaller space initially, so you do your horizontal incision twist the scalpel, and then insert the bougie uh, down into the hole. The disadvantage of that is it's a little bit more difficult to find where you are. When you put your finger in, you can feel that you're in the airway. And so so that's the reassurance. But the, the disadvantage of putting your finger in is it takes a fair amount of mental discipline in a moment where you're, you know, quite anxious to make sure that you remove your scalpel before your finger goes in. And I think the sort of, you know, to use the frame expert consensus of our of our working group, that was that, you know, there was a high risk scenario of disrupting your personal protective equipment or even uh, having a, a scalpel injury when the finger and the, and the scalpel are so close together. So um, our ENT has discussed other options for dilating. If you are able to get into the airway with the bougie, you know, you could use a hemostat, you could subsequently use your finger, you could even dilate with the tube if it's lubricated, it takes a lot more pressure. So there are other options. I think the most important thing is to practice one technique. If you're going to use scalpel finger bougie, practice it like on a vacuum hose or something and practice removing the scalpel completely before you get your finger in there. I did, uh, unfortunately, cut into my glove and, uh, you know, listen, it, it worked. But, um, you know, that was a reminder that, that we are looking in a close place with uh, a scalpel and a finger in, in close proximity to each other in a high high stress environment. Anything else you learned from this amazing case, Dr. Brown? Yeah, so check your tube placement. You're already below the level of the cords, so um, make sure that you uh, you know don't main stem the patient. And if uh, you, your sats do go down, think about that. And also, you know, just to be optimistic, you know, sometimes we get into a case where we think it's, oh, wow, this is not going to go well, and this mechanism was really terrible, and you sort of feeling you know, already a little bit despondent in the resuscitation, but it's pretty incredible what people can bounce back from. And you want to give your patient the best possible chance if they do survive, just go full court press all the way through and be optimistic and uh, give your patient the best chance. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Brown. This really does drive home the value of simulation, not only in our residency programs, but for practicing physicians. And I just have to put in a plug here for the EM Cases course 2019 in February. We are going to add a second day that's dedicated completely to simulation that's designed specifically for practicing physicians. So uh, I hope to see you all there. That sounds great. Thank you, Anton. Thank you.